Well, guys, we're talking about something today that David G. and Wade kind of deal with every single day just by nature of our business, um, which is how can founders who are not technical themselves make really good decisions when it comes to specifically their tech stack early on um, in their business? Uh, And we see this all the time, right? We've got founders who come to us and say, I need an XYZ developer and we say well what are they doing and they explain what it is they're doing and in fact they do not need the xyz developer they need somebody totally different david g i mean you probably have what a dozen of those conversations every month i've seen it happen in the last year at least a couple hundred times yes yeah it's very fun <laughs> so we got some reps in we got got some yeah. experience here and wade i mean same with you i know obviously here you've made almost every technical decision. Um, we haven't done a major migration, I don't think, since you joined, but obviously the product has evolved and required a lot more uh, of those kind of base level decisions since you joined, so. Yeah, I mean, our, our product has been relatively stable as far as stack decisions go for a couple of years at this point, but there were some initial ones on the front end there early on. Um, when I started, it was a bootstrap front end um, style sheet CSS framework. So we moved from that to Tailwind and mostly because I wanted to use Tailwind, which is spoiler <laughs> That's alert. That's an okay reason. <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, we're going to try and say it depends as few times as possible. <laughs> so maybe we can have like a little to do Mario coin every time it depends come up. I, I want to highlight those moments because I feel like those are the inflection points that founders or whoever is responsible for the build needs to be aware of rather than, you know, saying doing whatever the Internet says they should do or an investor says they should do to kind of mark those points where you guys say, well, it depends and make a note like I need to talk to probably a senior developer about this. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, I've got I've got some like high level advice that we can get into here as we kind of go on with it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to who you can find to do the project and what what the requirements are. And it's it's all trade offs from there. Mm. I would be curious to know why do so many people come to the table uh, with like an agenda of requirements in terms of skills like you know is it is it because somebody told them or is it because they do research or it's very common that someone told them hey uh you're building an e-commerce so you should look into uh all of these things that are around php and uh i don't know you should probably look into woocommerce or uh, i don't know Things like that, it's fairly common. Uh, Someone told them or they did a quick Google search. But in fact, what you want to look in and one of the main points of having someone technical uh, assist you with those conversations, you want to take it to a higher level, right? What What is it that you want? What is the customer problem that you're solving? And what is more important to you one thing over the other? It's always going to be a trade-off and that's always uh, the way that the discussion discussion should be directed that's how i see it you said something interesting david g which is you know you should always have someone technical 
to do this work with, at least the initial kind of brainstorming and decision making. And Wade, you said like often your stack depends on whatever that dev wants to work on. So I'm curious, how do you choose the right person to be your advisor in those early stages? What do you look for? It's a great question. <laughs> I mean, a lot of, well, to be honest, like a lot of the times what's going to happen is, you know, founder wants to do thing is hanging around with X crowd of people, winds up meeting Y person, Y person is an expert in given the thing that becomes the de facto tech. Mm. Well, if you don't know anyone, just try to find someone that you like hanging out with because you are going to spend a lot of time with that technical person bouncing ideas back and forth. So if you at least like this person to begin with, it, odds are that you are going to a right direction. Mm. So do most of the companies that come to us in this stage where you have to kind of advise on uh, technical trade-offs and stack, do you feel like they're informed properly about that? Or are they just like, why is the person that helped them make that decision not at the table? Right. And that's one, one of the things that we always try to get to that. Right. If you come into the table with that, uh, with one firm idea about how it should be, but you you present yourself to us as not being technical. Hey, where's the technical person that decided this? Can you bring this person to the table? We want to talk to that person because at the end of the day, when we're presenting developers so they can hire, that person is going to do the technical interview is going to be working on with uh, with them on a daily basis so we need that person to come into the table so that we can articulate those more technical questions and we can understand a little bit more about the problem that they're solving mm. i think one consequence we often see of making an incorrect decision when it comes to tech stack early is i mean naturally this is a part that we see is a hiring piece, right? Like they make the decision. If they don't have a technical advisor, like we offer on the front end, they make the hire in the incorrect stack that developer gets in and they're like, this is absolutely not what you need. And I don't actually know the technology that you need to be using. I'm not familiar with it. And so that's an expensive mistake because you've gone through the hiring cycle, you've gotten somebody onboarded in your code base. What are some other consequences of making an incorrect decision up top? with your tech stack? I, I would kind of qualify this as like not necessarily an incorrect decision, but it's an irreversible one. Not, mm. not that it's necessarily cannot be reversed, but reversing it is going to be hard and will be painful. Yeah. And what typically winds up happening in those situations is that reversing the irreversible decision becomes the thing that nobody ever wants to do because it's so painful. Mm. And so, this probably isn't exactly answering your question, but a lot of the times that I've seen that wrong decision made up front is not so much like a tech stack insofar as like, should it be Ruby or Python? It's like our, our problem space is reselling books from people and we sell them back to Amazon and they sell them to us. And we're going to do that with a WordPress plugin. And it's like... Mm. Okay, <laughs> that's that's a way you can do that. Um, but when you start digging into the requirements there, it turns out like you need a lot more software than what a WordPress plugin is going to do for you with like a WooCommerce situation. Mm. Mm. 
do tech stacks get invented to solve business problems or are they or is the evolution of tech stacks mainly developers trying to solve technical challenges for themselves and trying to solve business problems like why does more than one main stack exist depends on what level of abstraction or what level you <laughs> right yeah yeah uh, you you are thinking about programming language so it can get pretty academical so what in the academy what kind of problems what kind of papers are getting out and how people are researching that so that with that comes the new programming language from that and you can see uh, all of the um, things in the past well everything you think things are new in terms of programming languages like it's it's really old most of the things that you think are new are probably 10 15 uh, 20 years old um, and they come up from that and also from uh, big companies that have big problems that need to be solved differently. So that's, those are the main drivers for this innovation in this area. For frameworks though, it's more like, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm building, I want to build something slightly different here that attends to my needs. So I'll do this in a, this different way for uh, uh specific javascript need um, that is actually not something that everyone is going to need but for me it solves the problem in a better way mm. yeah it's a, it's a good chance to make a shameless plug um so when, when i started with gun on on our app the folks in place had created not an api framework that purported to be an api framework to solve our all of our api framework needs and so just in the natural course of like improving that, we now have an API framework that's available on the internet that's open source that anybody can contribute to. And the reason that we decided to go that route is because the 10,000 pound gorilla in the Django API space is called Django REST framework. And it's kind of like a, a big ball of stuff and things and is not as slim and precise as what I'd prefer to see. So out of that, we have a new API framework at Gun. Called Wharf, yeah. correct? Yeah, that's right. I am realizing as we're getting into this conversation, we probably should have started with basics uh, because <laughs> I, you know, I always assume that the audience is technical, but in this case, you know, we're probably talking to a lot of non-technical folks. So when we say tech stack, what do we mean? All the technologies that you're using from operating system to backend language to backend framework to database technology to front end CSS land style sheet frameworks, bootstrap, tailwind to that kind of nature. And then your front end framework as far as like JavaScript is basically going to be the answer there. But in certain edge cases, it won't be. And then there's a million JavaScript frameworks on top of that. Um, when you're talking about mobile apps, you're looking at iOS, you're looking at Swift, you're looking at Objective-C, you're looking at Android, Java, et cetera. Um, and also it could be as rudimentary as like what platform you're running on AWS, if you're hosting your own infrastructure, if you're running on Linode or what have you. So again, for folks listening who are uh, non-technical or maybe just getting started, there's probably like infinite combinations of those technologies certain technologies tend to play nicely with each other. So you'll often see a similar stack um, for a certain technology. But, you know, when we're hiring dev teams, 
that's why it can get so complex because even if even if you've got some experience with like html css you know javascript frameworks like there's a lot um there's a lot of kind of edge technologies as well that will kind of impact who you need and when mm. i'm curious about like what are the dimensions like let's say two people want different stacks like what how is that dispute arbitrated is it around ease of use is it around trying to hone in on the business problem it does it just depend you know like how or is it like i worked okay it's like i worked here and i know there's shit better so that's what we're doing because this is what we used at my old job oh yeah so you got already got the it depends <laughs> but um what i've seen is there's a cultural element to the company right you can see the folks that come in earlier there's definitely that uh, thing of uh, seniority and having all the context of business decisions that were made that led to that uh, path. So you cannot take that for granted. It's it's very common to see that people that get hired and they want to bring in uh, the stuff that they that they learned somewhere else and they don't try to get into uh, um, the context of that decision. Right? Uh, I bet a thousands of folks that got hired in the first years on Facebook, they were like, why is everything PHP still? We're at this size and still everything's PHP. We're doing a hundred different things to overcome the fact that we're still PHP, right? But we, we got to understand the context. The company was growing and a lot of companies are like that, growing in a ridiculous pace. And that's uh, impossible to change um, some of the things and just keep doing, doing, doing and delivering because delivering um, solutions is more important than just going back and change everything again and again. So it's a big independence, but that does play a factor of people uh, not understanding the context of uh, the decision that was made. Mm. I feel like the the truth is that because there are, there's kind of so much that goes into your stack, you're never going to every hire you make isn't going to be an expert in every single language and framework that you use. And we see that a lot with companies who are hiring, like, okay, this is a must have. These are nice to have. They can kind of learn these on the job. Are there any, in your experience, any front or back end languages that you would advise a founder, like, do not choose that because it's really hard for folks to become acquainted with it who aren't an expert already? Out, outdated things that should be dead like COBOL. Yeah. But I, I think really what you're getting at is like when you're making a decision around what the stack is going to be, like the number of developers that you can find to operate within that stack definitely plays a role. So right. if you're going to go out and find some esoteric new language that hasn't yet like gained market penetration, that's probably not the right decision. Think about the business, again, the business problem that you're solving. We, I think we saw one example, I don't remember when, a few months ago. It was interesting because um, the founders, I think they were requiring uh, the Phoenix framework and working with Elixir and all the Erlang VM and all of that stack. Uh, but there's a reason you go that route, right? You you have high concurrency. That's the it's a different type of applications that you want to uh, use. That, but if you have no really 
no reason other than, hey, this first person knew this and we want to experiment and continue with that. Maybe for those ones, try to go back a step and think about, hey, should I approach this on a different way? Is this really, uh, do I really need some something so powerful for this kind of small uh, business problem that I'm solving or more common business problem that I'm solving? I always try to think about that. Am I really using the tool that is commonly used to solve this type of problem? Mm. Do, can you guys think of a company that made a tech stack decision and that decision proved fatal to the life of the company? I don't remember anything like that. You can see a lot of like banks stuck on old um, mainframes and, and old programming languages there. And they need, well, they're not going to die because of that. They're not going to go away because they're banks. They have a lot of money, but they need to pay ridiculous amount of money for someone that still know those kind of things and is able to fix things in production mm. so that can get really expensive uh if you if you end up in a situation like that the survivorship bias there is probably the thing that makes that question hard there's probably been a ton of companies that died because of bad tech decisions but there were probably a hundred other bad decisions that went along with the tech decision that didn't necessarily like directly implicate the tech decision but you know, as a maybe an example that kind of lends a little bit of insight, like Twitter probably had the wrong tech to stack there for a long time. Yeah, because that there was a period in Treasure's life where they were constantly down, um, but they had enough money to get work through that problem, and now they have like super super reliable operations. So, yeah, that's interesting. Like maybe the tech stack decision cascades into an HR difficulty of recruiting the right people, which then cascades into a set of maybe business solutions from a technical standpoint that aren't optimal right and then so on yeah and so yeah. forth and the ones that i've seen in my in my career where the company eventually wound up dying or going out of business or something is it's not necessarily that it was the wrong tech decision but it was the wrong decision to continue down that path with that tech yeah. for too long um, because again, a lot of the times that it's like the wrong decision is not necessarily something as simple as language, but it was like, well, we started with this PHP forum and started modifying it and then built a community website out of that and then got a bunch of investors. And now it's like completely not even close to the thing that they're marketing or trying to make happen. Um, <laughs> and at some point it you makes, gotta rip that bandaid off. Makes me think of the, um, the parable that we talked about in your last interview, right. Wade, yeah. where it's like. Instead of fixing the broken thing, it's a sunk cost fallacy. So you just build around it until you end up with this thing. That's just, exactly. And then, and then it's hard to retain talent. Oh, mm. yeah, because no one wants to work in that. What about no code? Like, when would we advise a founder to pursue no code rather than you know, a traditional tech stack? Founders, non-technical. I would love if they start doing things uh, before like trying to solve the business problem whatever way they can Just strong bias for action go and do something spreadsheet no code just go and do it just go try to be, to fix the problem get some money moving like get your first few hundreds of dollars and then you start adding uh, those problems of trying to understand what uh, what is the 
proper tech stack that you want to put in place. Just find your customers, solve the problem for some people. Okay, I have a business. Now I'll try to find a perfect stack. So 100% no code, those things are here to stay. And I think uh, more of that if possible. A concierge approach to getting the business off the ground is, and I mean, that's what basically Gun did. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there was, there was an inkling of a website and there were like some jobs published, but at the end of the day, it was like a, a lot of back office humans doing all the work to make sure that things happened. And it got to a point where, okay, well, this is worth investing in building out the thing to make all this human work not as necessary. Yeah. And, and I, and I will share, like, that's definitely been a growth area for me because I think, you know, when we, when we kind of grew the business, we took that sort of no code approach where it was like hey let's spreadsheets i mean the business ran on spreadsheets and like on lever basically and then transitioning to a product i think actually i remember in the early days like i really struggled with caring about the difference between setting the direction and then being involved in how to solve the problem and that that is like an area of growth that i have definitely experienced that i think a lot of non-technical people that ultimately do have the responsibility of the solution being implemented like struggle with because they're trying to reconcile like the need for accountability and ownership with like the inability to actually do the thing so they have to give space for the thing to be solved in whatever direction that it's solved in right and that's like that's challenging it's really challenging to to get there um and maybe that's some of the resistance that non-technical people have when trying to decide a tech stack. It's like, well, I should care about this thing. I'm responsible for it. But then they don't know, like, all the context, you know? <laughs> right. And, you know, maybe you guys have more experience with this with folks who have come in looking for no code. But in, if somebody's looking for a developer for their no code platform. It's not doing the thing it's supposed to. <laughs> probably time to not use the no code platform. That's a good litmus test. I think Tasia, what what you were what you were talking about with like founders who want to be, you know, they're non technical founders or not developers themselves. This is a question that Abby sent us, and I think it's a really good one to cover. Which is like, for these founders who do want to learn and want to be at least like familiar with what's going on in, in a technical layer of their business, how would you advise that they? do that without getting in the way of their developers this is for me for anybody yeah i had to lean on sort of like the human element of like trust and like being able to sense integrity and then once you feel confident that you've made a high integrity decision in partnering up with somebody then you have to be disciplined enough to trust their decision making that's it you know and that's pretty psychologically difficult i think but like, that's the only way, like you just have to trust that they're making the right trade-offs and you have to trust that you've communicated the business needs sufficiently. If you take that lenses and apply to the other side, if you have the technical person, they completely need you to, to trust you that you made the uh, right decisions. They're going to question, they're yeah. going to verify, they're, they're going to trust, but verify if they're smart. Uh, but that, right there's the other side too because uh, yep. okay i'm gonna i'm going to build something for you and i i want to believe that we're doing something that is meaningful 
but I need to trust that you already understood, you already talked to the to, um, customers um, so I can go in and do my thing and, and, and create this um, all of this code. And it's interesting too, because this side is interesting too, because you have a lot of technical people that, hey, I have all these skills. I can, I can move mountains and put things into place, but I don't know what problems, what business problems people have and what they need to do. So you have that side of people uh, with all the technical skills, don't just don't know how to use it. As two people who advise folks on how to choose a tech stack, what would you recommend that they prepare in advance of those advisory conversations? Like what do they need to bring to the table so people like you can give them really solid advice around tech stack to choose? Evidence of their idea working in reality is a big step in the right direction because a lot of the times, like in those early days, people have a lot of ideas, but they don't have a lot of evidence that any of it works the way that they're suggesting. And again, that's <laughs> that's where it's good to like run the concierge business on, you know, Squarespace or something like that. And, you know, you use as minimal, minimal amount of tech as possible. There's an old quote that you can think on for hours that says no, no software is better than no software, which, you know, I kind of take to mean if you don't have to fix that thing with software, then don't. Uh-huh. Interesting. And so if, if it's somebody who's been running a business and it doesn't have the technology, then they've got a lot better sense of what it takes to run that business. And those conversations are going to be way, way more informed than, you know, having some hypothetical map of what level of concurrency you'll need a year from now. Because um, premature optimization is, optimization is basically the root of all evil. So... You know, you don't need to start with the thing that's going to solve for a million requests per second when you have zero customers. Mm. I would assume some sort of inkling of like business model. I mean, Wade, what you just said was like all of that needs to be on the t- like you need to understand your business model. You need to understand the business need that the software is solving. Um, so that makes sense. And obviously, like for different industries, there's. There's different go-tos, but I think there's a lot of flex space within that. Obviously, it depends. So I think I think it actually might be valuable to like go into why why it's actually better for a business to do things manually or to have the customer validation and the business model validation before automating it. Because, you know, like I, I think like we all know why, sort of, but it might be helpful to just like clear about that like it's not because people don't want to do the work there's like a legitimate reason behind it like there's no lack of people who are willing to do the work on a thing that eventually is not going to work you can pay a developer to work on something that's never going to work until you run out of money and i've seen it happen and it's not fun at the end of the day so i mean it's it basically comes down to classic eric reese lean startup stuff i mean you want to validate the problem and as learn as much as you can about it and then back feed that back into the system and improve your solution and learn more and hopefully sell more and get the business to a point where you know you're comfortable going out and hiring developers because developers aren't the cheapest Mm. Mm. and even the style of work is very expensive mentally it's like there's a lot of labor associated with 
investing into automating a solution less so than doing it manually. You know what I mean? Uh, and then it's, it's harder to unwind too. Yeah. It's harder to Maybe. unwind a hundred percent. I mean, w code has a maintenance cost associated with it. So, mm. <laughs> I mean, generally speaking, if things are built properly, you can spin them up and put them in production and they'll run for like until they don't, but that day will come and everything needs to get fixed. Dependencies change constantly. Things go out of date. Long-term service cycles for operating systems are only a few years. Like it's going to be full of security holes in a couple of years if it's not maintained. So there's there's costs associated with all the code that you do right. Mm. And if it doesn't do the thing that you want it to, then you need to have it changed. Mm. I also feel like it's really easy for founders, especially founders who um, get funding early, like rather than pursuing a bootstrapped um, business. Who and once they hire their initial dev team, it's really easy to get stuck in the trap of like, okay, well, there's, here's this feature idea or there's this bug we should fix and just feeding your dev team work that isn't actually moving the ball forward on the business. And it's really hard to kind of take a pause and be like, you know what, my dev team isn't gonna have any work for the next two weeks, but I need to rethink my business roadmap and figure out what the next most important thing is. In most uh -huh. situations, if you give your dev team no work for two weeks, they'll find plenty to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll build you a REST framework. <laughs> <laughs> e either that or they'll work out some things that they don't like about the way that the implementation works. Right. Which mm -hmm. is basically there's always those types of work items that can go on in an existing code base. Mm. Yeah. So, so we've spent a lot of time like talking about like really early stage ideas. You know, I'm curious like who like as an organization scales, who actually in the organization is like responsible for changing a tech stack or for making that call? Like, Hey, this is not, this is not worth the squeeze anymore. Like, how does that process even work? Um, That's a good question. Yeah, it's tough. It, and I don't, I don't think that you're going to find like canonical advice on this, but I'll, I'm mm -hmm. happy to follow up David G if you want to take a crack at it. <laughs> now it's, um, I've seen it different ways on um, startups and bigger companies, but mostly on, on enterprises, you don't want your um, like your architects and people at the highest level to be worried about tech stacks. Mm. They are they are going at the highest level possible, talking to the to the stakeholders and understanding the trade offs that they need to that they need to um, consider for moving business one direction or the other. And then they are going to um, advise all of the developers and all the teams, hey, here's the direction we are taking. We are, are using a reactive framework for uh, front end, whatever you want to choose. If you want to go Angular, uh, React, you, I don't care, but this is the way we move forward because of this, this, and this business uh, reasons. Uh, we're going forward on the back end with this languages again because of this, this, and this reasons. Uh, reasons. Uh, so that that is more structure on a, on a bigger enterprise. And when you talk about smaller companies, that should come from a CTO that's always talking to the to the stakeholders and understanding that. Um, and that's that's where the direction comes from. And then it's for the team to take that main direction and decide um, between them which specific 
specific technology they're going to use. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good answer. In the in the enterprise context, I think the thing that kind of was unwritten there is there there might be like way more like the number of tech stacks involved at that level mm. could be near the actual limit of how many tech stacks there are, depending on like the overall problem space that they're working in. So like yeah. Amazon probably has a little bit of literally everything. Mm. Somebody's probably using that. I think a lot of the times the change is organic because it has to do with the developer experience mm. being so poor that nobody wants to deal with it anymore. Mm. Um, and that's usually also coupled or may, may or may, may or may not be coupled with some sort of pivot that the company's undergone, whether or not that was something that was clearly articulated or something that slowly happened over time. So I've seen projects where like to bring up the PHP forum software that turned into community site example, like at some point that had entirely jumped the shark and could no longer support what the business was selling because they were trying to then white label it. Mm. And it's like, okay, so if you want this to actually work guys, like we really need to move the whole architecture over to something that's going to be able to support what you're now going out and selling. And I guess mm. there's also a little bit of a gotcha there because if you did build this tech too early and you have a sales team that's out selling stuff, a lot of the mm. times it's, it's easy for that sales team to just put requirements onto the product in kind of a right. way that's, I guess, organic, but it, if you don't have strong product management in that situation, like you can wind up with a bag of worms pretty quick. Mm, that that's interesting. Yeah. In in my mind, I envision a scenario and you guys can tell me if this is accurate. It's like maybe a business, like a revenue stakeholder comes to the architect and is like, Hey, we need to go do this thing. Cause some customers are asking for us to do this. It's a big revenue opportunity. And then the architect is like, cool that makes sense to do that. We need to like totally change how the way the product works. So that's going to take us 12 months to do that. And then there's that tension there. Is that, is that accurate or is that? It's happened for sure. And I mean, okay. Joel Spolsky has an article about how you should never do a from scratch rewrite. So, you know, there's that, but at the same time, Joel Spolsky, Joel Spolsky also did a from scratch rewrite and created programming language. So, you know, oops. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now we have an esoteric language that nobody understands except for the people who work here. So, I mean, take it, take it, take the advice at its own face value. But yeah, I mean, the from scratch rewrite thing is, is hard. And so I think the one thing that David G was kind of pulling at is it's like to the extent that you can stand up this part of the system that's now running the thing that we want that's going to be more efficient and do kind mm. of a, a slow replacement of slices of the system that's that's one approach that you can do where it's like you still have the fallback you still have all the things that it's doing but you can offload pieces to a new system mm. how, how should a non-technical business stakeholder think about balancing technical debt versus like revenue opportunity ask your developers i would say but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably its own whole podcast, but at the yeah. at a high level, so like, what's technical debt? So it depends. Yep. You know, one way to think Dang. about it is if your dev, <laughs> thank you, if if your if your dev team is incapable of getting anything done, then that may be an indicator that you have too much technical debt. Hmm. 
you know, a lot of the times technical debt will show up as like, for example, with us, like we've labeled clearly in our backlog items that are technical debt. And they range from like things that we don't like, that things we know we could be better to things that we eventually should do to higher priority beyond that. And at this point, you know, after two and a half years or so of maintaining that backlog, we're at a point where, you know, out of the 6,000 issues that we've created and most of them are closed and a hundred something open, I think we might have 30 that are technical debt related and we've got a milestone that's going to be coming up that will knock out like 15 of them that are actually matter. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's an answer. It's definitely an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one hit more uh, personal to uh, Deja. Deja really wanted an answer in that one. <laughs> <laughs> you damn right. But th but but this is where I have to go back to my previous answer of just trust. And so I don't need to fucking get it. I just gotta know that the dude gets it. <laughs> yeah, I think the litmus test is like if your developer can convince you one way or another, then that's probably probably the way to go as long as you trust who you hired yeah. a smart architect can if they don't want to deliver anything to you for a year and just just want to tinker with something they can definitely lead you to that direction if they want um, so it's 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 all about trusting that everyone is aligned on the same business outcome there totally Right, so they will find the right balance uh, if if they understand what is important to the customer. You know, one of the things that I think I've probably learned a little bit too late, but I'm glad that I learned it. Like, there's a cost to constantly aligning direction, and it, and it's a cost borne by everybody. And so, like, you have to be really good about getting the right people on board and making sure that the vision is like super clear. Yeah. And then after that, it's like. You just got to go for it for sure. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. You guys, thank Give you. Give them the last word. What's I don't the want last that word? No, that was a lot. That was a great last word. <laughs> All right. Guys, thank you so much. That was super informative. And I feel like we actually, we got into some really useful advice beyond it depends. So great work you two. Right. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, both David G and Wade, we met through the platform. Great plug, Tasia. Damn. And all of the people they've hired have also come through the platform. So, you know, the way to meet really solid technical people you can trust is, you know, at least we found is through us. Yeah. yeah. And if you, if you made it through this whole episode and you're like, I still don't know how the hell to choose a tech stack and or hire a developer, that's why we exist. So come talk to us and chances are you'll talk to one of the four of us uh, pretty early. So thanks for listening to the frontier podcast powered by gun.io. We drop two episodes per week. So if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and come hang out with us again next week and bring all your internet friends. If you have questions or recommendations, just shoot us a Twitter DM at the frontier pod and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Frontier podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. 
If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.